Hello and welcome to Founders Keepers, the leaders podcast that focuses on the people who have started and built the businesses making an impact in sport today. Sports entrepreneurs, who are they and how do they do it? My name is James Emmett and joining me on today's episode is Joe Tung, the founder and CEO of Tung Tide Management, her eponymous agency which specialises in talent management and production. Tung cut her teeth in sport as a local reporter before going on to work as an editor at BBC Sport. She joined independent production agency Something Else and went on to edit BBC Radio 5 Live's flagship football show 606 for 10 years. It was here that she forged invaluable friendships with presenters and pundits that would give her the idea and the confidence to launch her own agency in 2015. A passionate advocate for women's football and women in football, Jo was awarded an MBE for services to football and to gender equality in the 2023 New Year's Honours list. An active agent as well as a business leader, Jo and Tongue Tide Management currently represents the likes of Jill Scott, Leah Williamson, Dion Dublin, Andy Cole, Emma Hayes and Michael Carrick. Joe, did you, you used to be a journalist, right? Yes. Tell us about those early days then, your early career. Um, did you start as a, did you start as a journalist? So I always wanted to be a football writer when I was growing mm-hmm. up. Um, yeah. Loved English, love obsessed with books. We didn't really watch loads of television as kids. Mm-hmm. We, television was quite a treat, but I was obsessed with reading and writing yeah. and loved football. So just wanted to be a football writer. And the sort of pathway that I saw was, will you go and work for the BBC? Or you work for a football magazine, will you go and work for the BBC? Mm-hmm. And when I, so I did journalism at university and alongside doing sort of um, local radio, local newspapers um, to try and do, develop my journalism and my sports and, then and, where, just, and, and where is this? Where, where, whereabouts did you grow up? Where, where were you doing kind of local papers? Uh, South East London. So okay. we had FLR Radio, which was in New Cross, uh-huh. which I used to drive to. I did the breakfast show. So from 5am till 9am, I used to drive um, down. Oh, the, those wake-up calls still make me feel a bit sick. Mm. Um, and then I'd finish there at 9 and often I'd then drive down to Woolwich McDonald's and do a 10 till 6 in Woolwich McDonald's because you didn't get paid for local radio or local papers in those days. Mm-hmm. You probably still don't. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was great training. And, it was, you know, the, the job at that point was, my first job when I arrived at the local radio was to phone up every police station, every um, for the emergency services, and ask, had there been in any instance overnight? Yeah. And you can imagine in South East London, New Cross was often a fairly yeah, long time. Yes, turns out there have been some, yeah. So on the sports side, is there, was um, was that sort of Millwall, Charlton, you know, the, the, those are the clubs that you're kind of focused on? Yep, and I, I did, it was around the 1998 World Cup, 96 Euros, 98 World Cup. So there was sort of big, you know, I'd, I remember having to go to the local pubs in Woolwich to write about how they were covering the tournament, mm-hmm. um, similar to the stuff that, reporters do now you know nothing's changed in journalism has it no no indeed um obviously i've done my research joe and um i've uh, visited the website tongue-tiedmedia.co.uk um and i was interested to see as soon as i went there that tongue-tiedmedia.co.uk 
oh, look, the website's called Tongue Tied Management. So are we talking tongue-tied media or are we talking tongue-tied management? How, how do you describe the business? I describe it as tongue-tied management. But when I started okay. the business, the focus, I'd just come out of a media career. So yep. it made sense to be media. But then as it's grown, we've, we've kind of moved into the, we call ourselves a management company. Yep. Which also incorporates a production company. Okay. And what is it in a nutshell? So it is a sports talent agency and production company. Okay. Um, and you're the chief executive, right? You're your founder and CEO or your founder and chair? Founder and CEO. Okay. And how would you describe your role as it is today? What's your sort of nuts and bolts of what you do? So I oversee um, everything in the company. I've recently recruited a managing director, which has changed my life. Something yeah. I've been looking to do for a few years, but as you can imagine, in a small business and quite a niche business, it was very difficult to write, find the right person. And I actually found someone that I'd known for twenty years through through the industry um, who was having a managed to persuade to have a change in his career and brought mm -hmm. him across. But my day to day is to lead the company, run the company. I also, I still, I call it get my hands dirty. I love being an agent day to day, so. I do do the football contracts. Yeah. I do the I do the transfers. I'll do I love doing bookings because I love talking to people and I love being the middle person and I love making things happen. So yes, I'm the chief exec, but I'm a very hands-on chief exec, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we do productions, I'm a producer. Okay. The weird sort of sense of identity question. If you're sort of introducing yourself to someone who's got no idea about the space that you work in, who you are, any of the names that might be associated with what you do, what do you tell them that you do? Do you call yourself an agent or do you call yourself a, you know, a founder of a business? If I'm, if I'm talking to people who have no idea about the industry, especially young people, I call myself an agent. So okay. if they say, what do you do? I say, I look after people who work in sport. And they'll inevitably say, so what does that mean? And I say, well, I'll get them contracts and I'll arrange commercial deals for them. Um, I'll get them jobs and look after their day-to-day -day life, a lot of which is diary management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I, I want to go back to the sort of the moment or I guess the period at which you were thinking about leaving journalism and starting your own thing. But I just want to get a full picture of like where is tongue-tied management now how big is it um how many organizations people are you working with other agents involved etc etc so tongue-tied management represents 45 clients i think um we've got a staff of eight full-time we've been through a quite um a recent growth period i would say i think we were on a trajectory covid happened Everyone kind of paused, didn't quite know what was happening. And then we've come out of COVID. And for us, it's been it's been an extremely busy period and we've we've grown quickly, which is exciting. Yeah. Okay. Um, and just in the UK, just in London. Or are you We're just based in London, yeah. Okay. Um, right. So the birth of Tongue Tied Media. You were working at the BBC, uh, a sports reporter? Uh, I was actually a producer by then. So I I'd started with Sport Online, 
yeah. um, moved into producing. And actually the way I moved into producing was I literally was sitting in an office prepping for my weekend games uh-huh. and Ian Wright and Mark Bright were the first footballers to be given a radio show. And they used to come in on a Friday to prep their Saturday show and they didn't have any idea how to use computers. So I used to help them on a Friday and it just got to the point where they went to the boss and went, can she just come in on a Saturday? So I used to go in on a Saturday morning and effectively I was their runner. Mm-hmm. But through that, I then ended up doing script writing for them. Um, you know, doing I did anything on the show. Mm-hmm. And through that, I then ended up producing Saturday mornings on Radio 5 Live. And then I moved into TV. I uh, went into sports news and then I went into BBC Sport TV as a producer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what kind of year is this and when do you start thinking about what your sort of next move is post BBC so 2009 I left the BBC and went to work for something else which was a production company and it you know if you're in the industry obviously you understand what a production company is but when you're younger you just know the TV channels you'd probably well I certainly didn't understand that there were all this whole other world where production companies were making content for these platforms. So something else were pitching for 606, which is obviously the iconic football show. And I was part of their pitch and they won the commission. And I was actually, when they called me to say they'd won it, I'd gone to Africa and I was working for the World Service doing some media training for footballers in Africa. And I got a phone call from Steve Ackerman, who was the MD of something else at the time. And he said, we've won 606. And I was like, well, I better come home then. <laughs> so I came back from Africa and joined something else, which was a massive change. I'd obviously been BBC pretty much since I'd graduated. And, you know, the BBC is an institution and it's huge. And then went to something else, which was so fun, so exciting, so much going on. But you were very much... You, were, you had to, you know, there was, you did a bit of everything, which I think set me up really well for then what I've gone on to do in that you just did a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how long were you there? Um, I was there for five years, six years. Okay. And, um, it was, and it was from there that you launched Tongue From there yeah. I launched Tongue Yeah. So while I was at something else, so I was um, producing 606 every weekend, loved it. It was my baby. We made so many changes. It was, we brought in um, ex-footballers to present the show, which was the first time any sort of footballers had presented a show. You can imagine the editorial that went with that and responsibility that went with that. Um, not working with necessarily trained journalists, but pe- you know, footballers who had a completely unique angle. And I know that doesn't sound very revolutionary now in where we're at in the media now, but back then it, it was very revolutionary for a footballer to come off a pitch and present a show. And it was also quite difficult because, for example, we had Jason Roberts presenting it for a season and he was playing for Blackburn at the time and they were having a terrible time. I think they might have even got relegated that year. So you can imagine you've come off the pitch and then you're on radio and you're exposed to football fans, passionate football fans. Um, so it was it was great times. It was really hard times. I learned so much and I ended up doing lots of productions at something else. So I ended up sort of heading up the sport production side there. And then... They had an agency, they had a talent agency at something else. And a couple of the footballers had started saying to me, they'd been asking my advice on career moves, i.e. the current footballers, well, how do I get into this full time? You know, what should I what should I be doing? What opportunities are there for me? And then one of them just said to me one day, I think you should be my agent. And I so I went to something else and I said, I've you know, I've got 
a client, potential client for you. I don't know anything about being an agent, but I know how to look after people. And I know, I, you know, the, the legal side, the financial side, I can learn, but I will look after them day to day if you can help me on the other side. And they were brilliant and obviously saw a great opportunity and said, brilliant, come and sit next. So I literally sat, physically sat with the agents team on the right and the sports team on my left. And I just split my time and I learned um, and I listened and I learned. Um, and then we built up the sports side of the talent agency at something else while I was there. What you say, you know, you had this footballer come to you and it was a footballer, right? Yeah. And, and suggest that you be their agent and you're up for that, but you recognise that you are you don't you don't know the agency stuff right you you know how to look after people but you don't know about being an agent what did you think you meant by that and what did you learn by sort of sitting with the the agents at something else I learned that it's not brain science okay and as long as you can cover yourself legally as long as you have the right people around you so even that sentence where I'm saying I know how to look after people but I don't know the agency bit well, then you put people around you who do know that bit. So even now, I'd say, I know people. I know how to work with people. I care about people. I know I can see strategies. I can sort of see things that sometimes other people can't see. But I surround myself by people who know more than me about running a business, hence why I brought my MD in, about legals, hence why I've got my go-to lawyers, about HR, hence why I've got my HR um, department accountancy and so I've got my accounts team um, but it was also a really good lesson for me in that why did I wait for someone to ask me to be their agent why didn't I think oh I'm quite good at looking after people maybe I should do that um, so that's sort of two learnings I think is that I still take with me today is one I just I surrounded myself to give me the confidence to do what I knew I could do I surrounded myself by experts so the agency team Grant Michaels at the time Sarah Jane who I still work with now but also I do get a little bit annoyed with myself sometimes you know it's worked out okay but it was a really good lesson for me that I waited for someone to but that's the me. best sort of that's the best kind of salesperson right who gets someone to come to them rather than the other way around I hope so it's well I mean it's yeah. worked out okay <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, it's for worked, sure. yeah it's been a good strategy so far but if there was one, if there was something I wished I could change about myself, it would maybe be to be a bit more proactive that. earlier on. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so um, try and, if you can, put your finger on the precise moment where you thought, "I'm going to do this. I'm going to. I'm going to launch my own thing. I'm going to build around myself." Um, it, do you know what? It was a combination of things. There was lots going on in my life, so I'd worked really hard I'd worked a lot I you can imagine I eventually had two jobs I was working on pro sports programming but I was also I had eight clients by then so I was responsible for eight people's careers so the, I they're, they're, all, they're all footballers right footballers and, foot, and sports broadcasters so half and okay. half okay um so I'd neglected my personal life and I just had to have a sort of look at myself and say, right, this is the situation I'm in. I've chosen a path. I'm almost, I'm in it now. So I've, I've got to go for it. And I've got 
um, the makings of something and I maybe have neglected this side. So I've lost that side now for a bit. So I'm just going to have to go all in. And then there were lots of changes in the wider business at something else at the time. And so I had a few discussions with uh, the chief exec and the MD. And it became apparent that I could either go and join another company, um, a a bigger agency maybe, uh, where I could develop my ambitions, or I could go by myself. And I'd always, I'd never wanted to work for myself. I'd never wanted to run my own business. I'd never even thought about it, if I'm honest with you. It literally, you've got to remember, I I wanted to work at the BBC. I like the big company, the big corporation, being part of something huge, lots of people, surround myself by experts. And in my head, I thought if you ran a business, I was going to be at my kitchen table with my laptop and that would be it. I couldn't see how I could run something. So it just never sort of occurred to me. But the more that we went through it and the more I delved into it, it was it made the most business sense. You know, I had these eight clients who were um, ready to work with me. Um, I had, you know, a good relationship, I'd say, with something else in terms of go and do it. And every agency that I spoke to just didn't feel right. There wasn't an agency out there where I went, oh, you're the same as me. You believe in the same things as me. You're trying to do the same things as me. And every, I don't know, most bottom lines just came down to the money. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really, I didn't care about the money at that point. It was, but I want to do something with my clients. Like look at these, the people, people I was representing. I'd started representing female footballers. I was representing female sports broadcasters and I believed in them and they weren't necessarily generating the same income as the male side would be. And so to other agencies that they weren't interested, whereas I was interested in that bit. So as it went on, I just, it just became the obvious thing to do was I'm going to have to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. So I did. Mm-hmm. So when was that? 20... March 2014. March 2014. And can you can you give me a sense of who those, just a, a sprinkling of names and that, that sort of eight people that you had on your roster? Uh, so Dion Dublin, Colin Murray, Enia Luco, Dean Ashton, Rachel Bramfinis, uh, Michael Carrick. Um, yeah, that's probably... That's great. That's great. Uh, and the, um, I think... Um, so I'm making an assumption now, but I think what a lot of people know you and know um, Tongue Tied for in the industry is this sort of representation of female footballers, particularly, right? Um, and your position on and in the growth of women's sport. When did that? It, it sounds like the in the early days that wasn't necessarily a thing for you, right? It came a bit later. When did you start moving into that area? So when I first started, obviously, I worked on men's football. So I wrote about men's football. I made programs about men's football. I did follow women's football, but we it wasn't accessible to us. Um, and there wasn't that much demand for it in the media. So it wasn't like I was getting sent to cover women's football every week. I was covering men's football. But in 2012, um, obviously, we had the Home Olympics, Team GB, did very well, and Enya Luco, Rachel Bramfinis, Claire Rafferty, Claire Raff was an original. Um, they were all representing Team GB, and Eni came to me and said, look, I think I need an agent. 
women's football is changing. I think there's going to be commercial opportunities. Would you work with me? And I absolutely saw the opportunity. And I genuinely believe that off the back of 2012, bearing in mind home Olympics, we did well in the tournament. We had some great um, inspirational athletes. I thought something's going to change here. Um, and the women's game, the women's game wasn't professional then, but there was, it was moving in that direction. So I knew it would become professional. Um, so that's actually when I sort of first started working in it. So this is end of 2011, beginning of 2012. And we didn't have female pundits on television. You know, Jackie Oatley, I think had just done her commentary. She was the first female commentator. So it was really different times. And I went to the BBC and all the other broadcasters when I'd signed any and Rach. And I said, look, I've got these great athletes. Any was playing for Chelsea at the time. I think she had 88 England caps at the time. She'd be a great pundit. You know, she was a trained lawyer. She was eloquent. She was opinionated. She was smart. She was interesting. She's funny. Um, let's, you know, I think you should get her on your on your coverage. And the response I got back was, well, she's never played Premier League football, Premier League football. So why would we use her? You know, we, we have other athletes, former players who have played Premier League football. So that's who we're going to use. And this went on for two years. And I'd go back to the broadcasters and repeat my question and put forward my case. <laughs> and then in 2014, the BBC, Mark Cole, who was the editor of Match of the Day at the time, called me and said, right, we're on. And he's in. And we went up to Manchester and she did her first punditry. And I still, it's its one of the things that still makes me proudest in that it was really hard for any, like all eyes were on any. And it was like she had to speak for all women and all women's views on football. And it wasn't, it was just another football programme and she was just talking about another football game. And now we see that daily. But it was such a big thing at the time. You know, if you, you can Google it, it was in all the papers and Every word she said was scrutinised. Imagine imagine that now. If every time, and, you know, a lot of the female pundits do still get that. Um, but it was, it was just such a new thing. It was a novelty. But it changed everything where people realised that women have a great view on football. And, whoa, shock horror. You know, we understand the game. We, we can express an opinion on it. People want to hear our opinion. And now... Like I said, I think, you you know, we, we barely have a broadcast without a female voice on. There's such a thing, isn't there, with, um, and I remember that breakthrough moment, and it was and it was incredible, the level of scrutiny and the um, focus on the ums and ahs and the stumbles that she might have had there, there, there was as well. But it always strikes me that sports media in particular is really held back by this sort of conservatism in terms of how it's presented and how it's talked about on TV, you see what people are watching on social media and it's not necessarily old professional, you know, ex-Premier League players trotting out kind of well-worn expressions um, and relying on their experience from having played a few games in the league in the past. Often it's people who are set up as, you know, they're brainy, articulate people who have never played football but have a particular view or an angle on something. Why can't that be any gender? But, yeah. Um, but that must be that must be something that you've, you've struggled with, you know, throughout your career is that you are going up against inherently conservative organisations all the time. Yeah, and it's that having to prove you know more. 
And I found it a lot at the BBC. I spent a lot of years feeling completely inadequate and feeling that I didn't know enough about anything. I remember going home to my dad one day and saying, how does everyone know everything? Like, how does everyone remember everything? And he just said to me, read one broadsheet and one tabloid every day and you'll be across it. And you'll realise that most people are just regurgitating what they read in the morning. And I was like, once you realise that, basically our opinions are very often formulated from what we read and what we absorb. And the more you absorb, the more you're going to formulate an opinion because you can um, formulate your arguments, can't you, for for or against. Um, But I, I genuinely thought that all these clever people at the BBC, namely white men, knew more about football than me. And, you know, when I was younger, I'd, when I first decided I wanted to be a football writer, I went and got my coaching badges because I thought, I haven't played football since I was 13. I need to understand the rules of the game, the laws of the game, the techniques of the game to make sure that when I'm writing about football or talking about football, I'm okay. And, I, you know, the fact that I even felt I had to arm myself with that it was just so that I could feel that when I walked into a newsroom or when I walked into a room that my opinion was valid. And it's so, it's so different now. I, you know, I'm older. Um, I realised that all opinions of working on 606 was great for it because that's the basis of the programme was so many different opinions. Um, and I love different opinions. We, it was really interesting. We had, um, I was in a meeting this week with a younger member of my team and there was three sort of what I would call more senior people on the call, so more experienced people my age who'd been in the been in this game 20-odd years, and a younger member of my team who's probably worked here a couple of years. And he said, like, two things, but they were so brilliant. And then we've got, we've set up a WhatsApp group, and I said to him, I said, please put in anything in the WhatsApp group. Like, your opinion is almost more interesting than the three of us because we're all of a similar age, you know, we've probably had similar experiences in the industry. We've probably got fairly similar views on sport because we've worked together for how many years. But you're the interesting one. Yet I do remember being that younger person thinking, well, I don't have anything interesting to say because they know everything. It's just, it was, you know, it's so interesting seeing it now 20 years on and sort of thinking, God, I wish I'd have just spoke up a bit more yeah. um, or been more confident in what I thought. Because yeah. in football, there's very little right or wrong. It's just yeah. opinion. Leaders Week London, our annual sports biz extravaganza and the most important meeting you're going to have all year is drawing ever closer. On Monday the 16th to Thursday the 19th of October, the who's who of global sport business, technology and entertainment will gather for a series of events, awards and think tanks taking place all day, all night, all week across the city. The clocks are ticking and so if you want to maximise on time out of office by connecting with any one of the 3,000 senior stakeholders in sport that will be London bound on the 16th to the 19th of October then head to leadersinsport.com forward slash leadersweek to secure your pass. It's interesting what you say there, you know, when, when any eventually got on and became the kind of first female pundit in a, in a mainstream kind of you know, UK football show, she, you're right. She wasn't just representing herself and her particular kind of, you know, individual's perspective. She was representing women and, you know, what women think and say about football, which is ridiculous. But talking about 
but you know maybe natural in that sort of circumstance but you know talk that that example of young person has the nerve to proffer an opinion and it's interesting and exciting and dynamic and you know people want more of that you almost see it now when young people do kind of offer an opinion in a in a professional circle their opinion becomes like oh well that's what young people think it's not like the the sense of individual is taken away from kind of minority opinions it's so weird isn't it um, it is but also but i think that's that's good for young people to understand how valuable their opinions and their their input is um and it's up to us to allow those forums um yeah for sure um so 2014 the launch um you're out on your own um you you know you know all the agenting stuff now you love being an agent um but how did you find the process of being you know the the name on the door and um you know company's house and you're not working for a big institution anymore it's all on you what were what were those early days and kind of teething troubles like do you know what the the first few months I really enjoyed because I just did ev- I literally just had a laptop that's all I needed a laptop and a mobile phone and some clients and I was I mean I was inputting things into the schedule I was doing the invoicing I was doing the agenting I wasn't doing the actual banking I was smart enough to get someone to help me with the accounts from the off um yeah it was it was just quite simple as in, it was. It felt. It feels like those were simple times. I was booking booking jobs for clients. I was helping them do good stuff. Every win felt like a win, and I really enjoyed. The, you know, like now I look back and I'm like, I know every bit of this business because I've done it. When I set up, nothing was set up. I had a a name which worked because my surname is Tongue, and people remember that. And Tongue Tide seemed quite apt for giving athletes a voice, which is kind of what I'm here for. So that was taking care of. My friend designed a logo for me. Someone made me a very simple website. You know, like, it was just very simple and very basic. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel under any scrutiny. I didn't feel under any, I think the beauty of it is, like, I've never felt any pressure to succeed. I, I put pressure on to succeed. But if this all goes to pot, I'll go back and work in McDonald's. I loved working in McDonald's. It was so hard. It was so great. I loved talking to people. It's really satisfying. We used to have competitions every day to see what you took on the till, how you know how many upsells you could do from a burger to an extra value meal. You know, I've got backup plans. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of just, I enjoy it. I enjoy every day. Like it sounds so cliched, but I genuinely, every day is really fun because something different happens. And even in those really early days, I ended up sharing an office with a friend. He had a sort of more advanced production company and he said, oh, come and have some desks. So I just took a desk with him, turn up with my laptop, go and have meetings, get stuff done. Yeah. So what? So it sounds smooth and um, enjoyable. What was the big sort of, there must have been a challenge or a hurdle or an obstacle or, you know, a fork in the road, at least at some stage where you thought, oh, hang on, it's not all sweetness and light and um, keeping things simple. Yeah, I think there's a fork in the road with running my business every day. And much as I get up every morning and th- I genuinely go, what's going to happen today? Something good's going to happen. What exciting things are going to happen? 
you also know, oh, what curveball is going to be thrown at me today? But one of the great things about having been a live producer in a former life is if you can broadcast for the BBC live and not flap, you can generally get through most things. Um, I remember the most petrifying thing about the BBC was on Remembrance Sunday. And if you're producing on a Sunday morning, you had to cross to Radio 4 at the exact time. And I mean, you know, pray that we didn't leave a mic open or pray you didn't do anything. And that for me was probably the scariest thing I've ever done. So whatever you throw at me in agent's life, it's going to be okay. Um, That's not to say we haven't had tough times. You know, we had... We had to deal with the whole England FA, any Mark Sampson issue. We've had, you know, when players get dropped or players get sent off, which seemed like the biggest thing in the world. You know, this is people's careers and people lose jobs. And I'm often the person that the broadcaster or the club will call and say, we're ending their contract. And then it's up to me to tell the client that. And that's people's lives, it's people's careers. You know, especially in football, there's, you know, I remember it was a it was a Sunday night and we'd agreed a move to a club for someone. And then I got a call saying, there's a compensation clause. And if we're held to that, we can't do this. We can't do this transfer because we don't have the funds to pay the compensation. So transfers off mm. if the selling club hold us to this compensation. And in that moment, it's, you know, your client's, about to move their life to a whole city that they've potentially never been to. Um, and you have to call and say, there's a problem. Don't, you know, don't drive anywhere. I know everything's in your car. I know you're backed up, but just hold. And that's that's really difficult because I don't know what's going to happen. I can say to you, it's going to be okay. I'll fix it. But I don't know it's going to be okay. I can only fix it to the best of my abilities. I'll, I'll work my hardest to make it as okay as I can but lots of these things are out of my control and especially in well in football and in in broadcast they're actually really similar in that so many things are subjective so whether you think a player is right for your team or not yes clubs use stats but it's also very subjective as to what type of player a manager wants in their dressing room likewise television is so fickle it's so subjective what you think is talent Someone else doesn't think it's talent. What direction a channel's going in is not necessarily the direction that your client fits. And that is so hard. So I can be the best agent in the world and I like to think I'm okay, but I'm still not 100% in control of everything. Mm. And that's really hard. What's, what's the, in your view, what's the most challenging thing about being an agent? Because something that strikes me there that you said with athletes there's always the there's always the question of being dropped or not having your contract renewed and you know that's really difficult personal life moment these are people's livelihoods but you're running a business and these people uh generate revenue for your business and your employees and surely there comes a point where you have to consider whether you represent these people anymore yeah and that's part of the reason that I love working for myself and not having a board And part of the reason that I think I was quite off put joining a bigger agency when I was kind of at that crossroads of, do I go by myself or do I join a big agency? Because I've never been answerable for which clients I can keep and which I can't. So there's a lot of clients 
that I work with because I believe in them or because I've done something for them and we've we've built something good for them that a board may look in black and white on figures and say ours versus money absolutely not but I love the fact that I don't necessarily work with people because of the black and white ours versus money I can work with someone because I just think they've they've got a niche talent or I just think they're great or they've got a great story or I think I can help them in a way that maybe somebody else can't. So I really, I really like that. But no, you're right. It was, it's actually in COVID, I remember obviously in COVID when everything shut down, all the clients were calling me, what we can do? There's no, I mean, there was no live sport. There was nothing. So Joe, you know, especially for freelancers is in the broadcast world sport stopped so sport output stopped so they had no work they weren't getting paid so they're calling me what we can do what we're going to do and one client called me and said are you okay because they'd obviously realized that everybody was calling me going what do we do but obviously my little heart is going what do i do (laughs) what do i do because i don't have a business either um and actually that's where i actually defaulted and made some programs because and that's why I've I've got the two sides of the business I've got the agency but I've always you know I talk about backup plans but I mean I love having the creative outlet and I think it's really good for the staff also to be able to decide to make a program you know we did a program on hip-hop and hustlers in hip-hop and we did a program on raising called raising the bar on the legal system and the justice system because it's a passion of mine and I love having that but actually in COVID when live broadcast stopped, I could go to a broadcaster and say, I'll make you a 20-part series. And I did. And I made it from home. Um, but yeah, it it took... I still, you know, I still remember taking the phone call. I was out on my half-hour walk. And I still remember the client phoning me and saying, are you okay? Because this must be really hard for you as well. And I'll always, I'll always love her for that. Mm-hmm. Um, following on from that... Um... You know, all agents will have to have um, what other people might consider to be difficult conversations quite a lot of the time. You're in negotiations. You're in multiple negotiations all the time. I bet if you looked through your inbox right now, you could tell me that you are going back and forth with X, Y and Z about something. You know, plenty of negotiations going on all the time. You're you're trying to find leverage. You're trying to... um, keep relationships, lean on relationships. There's a lot of things that people might consider to be challenging conversations there. What do you consider to be a challenging conversation and how do you do them? I think challenging conversations are when there's going to be disappointment and I hate upsetting people, I hate disappointing people, but I'd always rather be honest and I've always felt that look, here's the facts, and that might be really disappointing and really sad, but let's think about what we can do about the next, you know, what's the next bit? So my sort of ethos or way I do things, and I, you know, I'd love, it's weird, like I'd love to spend some time with another agency to see how they do it, potentially, but for me, it's just, look, here's the facts, this is what we're dealing with, because I I think if you're ever not truthful, you're going to come unstuck. It's often when it's something that's not nice news that you've got to share or something that's going to be a disappointment. It's not my choice that that happened. 
And yeah, I think it's quite easy to blame the agent sometimes. Like, oh, the agent could have done better for me. Fair. That's, you know, I'm sure that happens sometimes. But it's almost, I'm the messenger, but my job is to go, right, we're a team. So how do we fix this together? Because it's any disappointing news for a client is going to be so disappointing for me because I'll feel that I've let them down or I've not done my job or, yeah, I've, I've not delivered for them. So however disappointed they're going to be, trust me, I'm going to feel it as much, if not more, because I feel the weight of responsibility for it. Right, let's do this quick fire round then. Okay, um, so I'm going to uh, read out a sentence and essentially you have to fill in the missing words. Okay. Word or words, okay? Tongue-tied management would never have happened without... Tongue-tied management would never have happened without a million different sliding doors along the way. Okay. Um, what keeps me up at night? My WhatsApp keeps me up at night. Turn it off, Joe. Just turn it off. You can't when you're an agent. Stuff uh, happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, my secret talent that not a lot of people know about is... My secret talent that not a lot of people know about is... I'd probably have to kill you if I told you. But Did, uh, uh, if you really want one, I'd say my levels of empathy. Okay. Um, deep down, I'm really just a frustrated... Deep down, I'm really just a frustrated garage raver. If a business or life coach guru type person could grant me one wish, it would be... If a business coach guru could grant me one wish, it would be how to manage my time. My approach to risk is... My approach to risk is completely based on instinct. Okay. And then finally, my dream kitchen cabinet of business advisors would be who? Oh, this is so hard. So my dream kitchen cabinet of business advisors would be Tim Cook. Great innovator. Great brand. Now's it. Uh, Daniel Levy. I think I could learn some negotiation tactics, but also I might get a free box at Spurs, which is the dream. Have you negotiated with Daniel Levy before? Never. I'd love to watch him in action. And Emma Hayes, because she understands how to get the best out of people. She's the best leader I know. Very good. Very good. Right. We're getting on. So but I want to ask you a yeah. couple more, if that's okay. okay. What's the... um? What's the goal? I mean, you're in. You're, you're obviously still in it. You've got passion for it. You've got appetite for it. You love. You still love being the agent. But people who start businesses often have an endpoint in mind. You know, an out point, a number. Is there? Is there? Is there that for you? I didn't realise when I set up Tongue Tied that when you set up a business, you're meant to have an out point or you're meant to have a goal, and. I spent the first sort of four years, five years just doing. And then people started talking about investment or acquisitions and all of the above and business strategy. And I realized that I was meant to have thought about that five years ago, but I was just having such a good time and working so hard. I wasn't coming up for air. So um, it's a work in progress. <laughs> okay. Um I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make you go further. Actually, um, do you live to work or work to live? I would initially say I live to work, 
but it's actually really blurred lines because I also work to live because my work is my life, as in everything I do, like I don't see this as work. I don't come to work. I just do stuff and I go to sport and I travel and I, you know, my family come with me and my sort of a lot of my social life is based around my work because it's not work. It's watching sport or talking about sport or creating things. So I live to work because I just love my work, but I actually don't label it as work. So I I think it's quite blurred lines. Okay. And final question. I'm interested in a sort of a learning moment for you. And so to try to get there, I'm going to ask you what you feel the biggest mistake is that you've made on your entrepreneurial journey and how did you address it and what do you feel you've learned from it? I think I make mistakes every day. So I think it'd be really hard to pinpoint one huge mistake um, because I do pride myself on being a fixer. And I always say, you know, we're all going to make mistakes and we all make mistakes every day in the office, but that's cool. It's what do we do about that mistake? Um, So I, I think it'd be quite hard to say, oh, that one big thing was a massive mistake because we, I mean, this would be the longest podcast in history, but I do, I do think that everything, I mean, there's, with you know hindsight's great and I can look back with anything I think it's and it's a real sort of sporting analogy isn't it you can analyze a game you can sit there and go oh I should have moved then or I should have made that run then or should put that foot in there or I shouldn't have let them come on the inside there but you did because instinctively at the moment that's what you felt was right at the time so are you going to sit there and yeah have a little deep, you know, have a debrief, get some learnings. But I think if you sit there thinking, mistake, 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 we'd be here forever. It's, well, I did that because I did that and I'm going to own it. And at the time, and that's what I said, you know, I, I work very much on instinct and what feels right. And I go with it and I back myself. And I'm sure there's people that would say, oh, that was wrong or that was right. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and dwell on them. I like that philosophy. Mistakes happen, live with it. Yeah. Thank you. Joe, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate your time. <laughs>